Hi, and welcome to our podcast, Bodies and Souls, Conversations for the Jewish Woman. Good morning, and welcome to this episode of Bodies and Souls. Your hosts for today are Rifki Boyarski and Sarah Lowenthal. Today we have the honor and privilege of having my mother with us. My mother um, is actually here representing the last part of our series where we're interviewing different women who are representative of different struggles in different communities around the diaspora. Um, and today we are interviewing my mother as a representative of Yemenite Jewelry. Um, so Ima, can you start us off and just tell us a little bit about how Jews got to Yemen um, and what their place was in Yemenite society? Okay, fine. After Choban Bait Rishon, the, the, the Jews, mostly from Shevet Yehuda or from Shevet Levi, they left Israel and went uh, to Yemen. They heard the Nebuah from Yermiao uh, and they followed his uh, Nebuah and they went there and stayed there until 1948. They lived mostly in little villages. They were not really living amongst the Goi. And my father, I can tell you about my parents, they were all Levim, and they tried to stay among Shevet Levi. My mother, father was a jeweler, and he also was a sheikhet, and he also was kind of Rosh Kehila. When the Jews did not, when Ezra and Nehemiah, I'm going to touch a little bit with history. When Ezra and Nehemiah and Bait Shani called the Jews to come back, the Jews of Yemen did not want to come back. And as a result, he did curse them that they're going to be poor. Uh, nobody will see the Gdula until Beata Mashiach. They're going to have a lot, there will be Arbel Rashim. And really you see this in Yemenites, uh, almost every family has their own shul. And they really live very, very modestly. There were no luxuries they did for the Jews in Europe. But uh, they were very, they kept the Torah there and kept them in Hagen very strictly. Uh, when I read the, the book of Evan Sapir, I learned a lot. My parents came from the city, and they were uh, they had a different way of davening, and they followed the Rambam. They, they daven according to the Baladi, which is a little bit different. I just want to backtrack. You mentioned that every family had its own show. Every family, you have to understand, they, they live like Hamula, a family, the parents, the children, the aunt, the grandmother. So it was like very family oriented. They did not, not like the way today, we don't, we're not really familiar with it. Everybody lived far away. But here, the mother will help with the kids, the grandmother will help with the kids. And so they had a shoe. Many of many shoes doesn't mean every family, but definitely there will be a few families that depend on where they live. And they lived really in a small village, villages, because Yemen is very, very mountainy. So in order to avoid assimilating with the Goyim, and also the Goyim did not want them to be amongst them. So they live in small mountains, they sleep in little small villages, uh, my parents, my mother come from, uh, from Tsana. My father was a city next to Tsana. And remember, we're not talking about the same gather 
as today that we know. You know what I mean? A city that was not a big city. Yatsana was a big city. If you look at, at uh, if you look uh, to see how Tsana is built, so you see they had building like three floor story home. They were kind of, uh, I'm talking about cities. They were advanced, the way they built the houses. And there were a lot of Jews who lived further away by the, closer to the, uh, to the border. So there were different. Um, Ima, what about the quality of life? Did the Jews have a good life in Yemen? Were there periods of better life or, you know, struggles? Uh, okay. What was the quality of life for Jews living in Yemen? Did they have equal rights? Um, did they have opportunities to grow? No, the, the Jews in Yemen were respected, but they did not have equal right. For example, they, they could not have horses. It's only for for the Arab. They, they were allowed to have donkey. They were not allowed to have too high uh, building. They can, they, they sure could not be higher, too high, because the mosque has to be there. They kind of kept the Jews and a low profile. But they did respect them. They lived very modest. There were times the king was good. He would let them more, to live more easy. And sometimes they had to pay a lot of tax. And, and not only that, when they had policemen who goes for the city, any, any places, if there is somebody who died, and they are often, very often, they will take the orphan kids and uh, attack them to be Muslim. But, but there was a system amongst those Jews that they will marry them quickly before, even they will be 10 years old. My uncle, for example, married many, many women, but it was fictive, it was not real, in order to save those girls from going to be, to take, to be taken to the Muslim, to the, to the Arab. My mother, her father passed away. So she and and her, and her, her sibling were not at home at the time, and where my father walked, he told him my father wanted my mother already, so he told him if you want this woman, go quickly because there are policemen going and nobody's there in the house and she left it left the city in order to prevent of getting married, and then he sometimes even Yemenite will get married to three women and really live with one woman. But, but they will give get, they will give a get in order there won't be a problem with a guna, a problem with marriage. Can you just go back to what you said about your uncle? Yes. Your uncle married multiple women in order to save them from the Yemenite policemen, snatching them yes, and yes. taking them. Well, tell me, tell me about this. Okay, okay, my uncle, was a very handsome man, okay? So they, he was very fearless. You have to understand, to see my uncle to understand. So he knew where they will hide those girls. And he dug under, under the, the, where, the house where they kept them. And he took them out of there, married them on a spot. And, and he, when he came back, then they, they caught him. They heard that he's doing that, and he also used to kidnap them and take them out of those places. And then he had to run away because they were after him. And he ran away with a boat, he ran to Adam, and he came much more later after my parents. 
because he could he could not go back to Yemen and he could not go back to Israel at the time until he did come and then I was told he had to go find all those young girls and give them a gift. And one of them he did not want to give a gift. But she was very young. She was before him for two years. And they already told her, you're young, when you get married, because they want to assimilate them. And he gave her a gift because she, she said, I'm too young. She was 14, 15. Coming to Israel, they already told them. They already tried to brainwash them. It's very interesting. I, I see like echoes of this mentality in even in the story of the stories of like how Arabs reacted to the young girls, even in October 7th, that, you know, the, the ownership of these like girls who were unattached that they just took them. It's the same type of mentality that we're listening to you speak about of the Arabs taking ownership of young girls and just taking them for themselves, which is, is an insane thing from our perspective of where we're standing. Well, but, but in Yemen, they knew because the kids, the family were religious, they knew they are good value. They did value them very much. It was, uh, uh, it was a very high to take a Jewish girl, Yemenite girl, and make her an Arab. It was a good quality <laughs> of converting. But uh, um, right, that doesn't make it any better. <laughs> that makes it know, I know, I know, worse. I know. Of course, now I know that Yossi, his father. Okay, there was somebody a relative who got orphaned, and his father was young, and they knew that if she's not going to get married the next two days, she's going to be taken away. Yossi told us his father, uh, not his father, his the grandfather took took his father. And told him you have to marry her. He said, "I don't, ma I don't want to marry her. I don't like her." It's, they're showing the girl, and and it got to the point that if she's not going to get married, she's going to be taken the next day. He even hold him by his head, by his leg. Tell him if you're not going to get get married to her now, we're going to be the beating. They are beating law, and 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 they told him we're going to kick you out. And you have to go and get married to her, and he was not really happy. But he got and married to her. Was way, it was a way of them saving these girls from falling yes, into yes, a very, very bad situation and yes, a situation yes. that nobody wants to be in. Very, very similar, what I'm trying to say, to what the like what hostages, you know, not to compare. It's, it's a horrible situation. Okay. So when, so my parents said life was okay. They didn't ask, ask for a lot. They believed. Time to come to Israel was, did not come yet. They did not want to go back. They kept they kept the hugging the way it used to be long ago, and they did not even want to get married. If a Raf come from Egypt as a shliach, want to marry, for example, his daughter to one of Yemenite boys, Yemenite did not want to get married even to another Jew out of the Yemen because they wanted to keep them in hugging and everything. I'm not saying Maliuta or Legreuta. I'm just saying a little bit of the mentality and culture. Right. So when my, when my parents came to Israel, and if they saw a, a Jewish guy, even from Yeshiva, without a beard, they did not trust him. Because they never saw a Yid without a beard. And they would not even take the help, even when they wanted to help him. They couldn't believe he's a deed. Okay. I want to just talk about, I want to talk about one more thing. Okay. 
it was, if I remember correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was possible for people to achieve some form of wealth in Yemen, right? Yes. Yes. So Saftarina, she came from a wealthier family. Yes, yes. So there was some sort of feeling of normalcy, that feeling of success, feeling of security, feeling of, even with these stories that you're saying about orphans that are being taken away, for the average yes, yes, person, yes. there was still a sense of we could succeed. This can be our home. Okay. In Yemen, the Arabs did not even do any jewelry. Only, only the Jews were the professional in this field. So they were very, very valuable. My father, like I told your children, there is a story about the well. That that's the way they got a lot of money. There was a story about the well that was at the grandfather's home. And until today, it's called Be'er and they, And people came to buy water and it became very rich and they had big home. They had a big home. My mother did also because the father was a jeweler and he was a rosh and every, every Thursday they will shecht a kipsa and my mother happened to be the one who will put them in a little bag and give it to the poor people. This is the story I heard, not only from, not from my mother, from people who knew my family after my mother passed away. And they said that that's what they always called them the good people, because every Thursday there will be food distributed to the poor people in the community. Yes, my mother said they had like three floors. One floor was they kept for Pesach, and the grandparents lived in one floor. They slept in, uh, lived in one floor, and they had a kitchen which was special for Pesach. I don't think everybody wore, but there definitely was time that the Jews felt very comfortable according to the standard of Yemen. I'm assuming that in the smaller little mountainous villages that you described, it, it was more poverty than in the yes, city. Yes, yes. It was more poverty, right. Yeah. The Arab, yes. The, the, the Yemen are divided like in the city, a little bit a villager, and there was a little bit different accent, different custom, different food. But uh, yes, more to the city, they were more wealthier. Wealthier. I don't want to go into education or anything like this because from what I gather, almost all, all, all the young boys were taught from when they were three years old, they already went the Torah. So, so they, by the time, like I asked one kid, uh, are you ready for your bar mitzvah? I happen to be a Yemenite kid today that his father is so crazy to keep them in hugging. So I said to him, are you ready for your bar mitzvah? He said, what do you mean? And I read all the time, every year. I know all the Pashat by heart. By the way, for everyone who's listening, I'm just going to clarify in case you didn't hear this. The Yemenite people, they once the kids master reading the Torah, they can call them up even before bar mitzvah. So yes. my mother asked the Yemenite kid, are you ready for your bar mitzvah? And he said, what are you talking about? I've been going to the Torah since I'm four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I saw my father teaching my brother every Shabbos, every, and, and the back of Talgo, reading the Pasha and Talgum, every Shabbos, even to me. Right, so the boys got a very, very thorough education, um, which had a lot of hallmarks. Um, but the girls were actually, I know that my Safta, Saftarina was illiterate, but like my mother will tell you, the girls knew so much, even though they couldn't read and write. 
So I have my grandfather's sister, Doda Sara. She was a tiny little lady. I can't even oh, like, when we come into the room. She was blind at the end of her life, but she was so small. She would be sitting in the windowsill with her blanket and we would almost not notice her, but her mouth was moving the whole time. She knew that to Helen from start to finish by heart. And she sat in the windowsill blind in her own world saying to him again and again and again. So yeah, yeah. they have been illiterate, but they knew a lot. They were, the women were allowed to sit and listen when the men learned Torah. So my mother was listening. Her father was a Talmud Chacham. I think most men, because they learn all the time, they knew. And she was allowed to listen. She even corrected Dod Yossi once. And he said to Doda, how do you know? And she said, I listened to my father. So they were allowed to, even she didn't know to read, which bothered me. <laughs> but yes, she, she, she knew a lot. She did. So fascinating. I love all the details that you're giving over. I would love to hear more details, but at this point, I think I, I want to hear about the uh, very famous operation, what's it called, Magic Carpet, when yes, all the Jews yes. from Yemen in yes. 1948 came to Israel. And... I was Googling, it looks like there's around 50,000 Jews that lived in Yemen. Yes. And now there's like one Jew. So all 50,000 of them were brought to Israel. Can you tell us about that? Okay. What really was special about this operation is when the Shluchim came to tell the Jews in Yemen that they are, there is a plan going to wait for them to come to Israel and it's time to come. So they all kind took it very serious and uh, they just got together. That nobody was expecting them to come in a short time. So they all came from different, like in a few weeks. But it was a disaster by the time they got because nobody expected to come so much. My father, was, he told me they had, he had two stores. One store doing a blanket and pillows and the other store had he was doing a shoe, shoe, shoes. So what he did, he said they were not allowed. They talked to each other in shul. They, so everybody said, what time they're going to, to leave Yemen. So the kind of, kind of organized operation. So he put his needle, he said, that you're not allowed to leave Yemen without permission and without passing on your professional. So in order to, to go around that, he just left the store open, left the needle in a blanket, left everything open. And, and I, it took like, he took, uh, I think three donkey he hired, one for the two grandmother, he made like a, pa, a, ba, uh, a basket in each side, and each after sat on one side, and the other one, the other donkey was for my mother and two sisters. And the other one was my father and the food. They did not go into our city. They went around so nobody would see them. When they knew adventure, they took food with them and they walked aloud. If you see the picture of my, my parents getting to Aden, you, you think they are Holocaust survivors. He said they walked for weeks in a desert and a heat. They could not even go into uh, Arab town. They stayed outside. And then, then a lot of them came to Aden. Nobody expects so many Jews to come. And there was no place. 
no, no, with only one doctor or do two doctors and two nurses, one tent. They said that a lot of people died because there was no food. It was horrible. So by the time they went to the plan, a lot of, a lot, I know my mother, I think my mother lost two boys, but before they left. Yeah, but before they left, yeah, two boys, yeah, she did. And two boys she left, and uh, they were happy to leave, but when they did not expect Israel to be the way it was, they were not expecting to see not religious people. And but they, they were sure. Every time I heard at home, they wanted to go back because they, they saw what's going on. So they were sure by that my Operation Magic Carpet was actually Mashiach. They were sure that they were going yeah, yeah, to so, because they were coming back and, and this was going to be Al-Kanfi Nasharim. They were going straight to, to Mashiach. Yes. And, 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 and the sad thing was that my father said, they took all the jewelry from them before they bought the plane. They took all the books, Sefer Torah, with a, with a, with a excuse, it's too heavy for the plane. You'll get it later in Israel. Never happened. They lied. They took it. But uh, them seeing the plane that looks really like a bird, they really believe that really Mashiach is coming. How old were you? I did not born yet. Only, only my sister, my two sisters, one sister, Malka, and other sister was taken away. So uh, she was, uh, my sister was seven, my other sister, Ora, was five. I thought they only took away the infant. They took also an infant, but she was five years old, or four years old, yes, they took her. My sister, she was there for a few months. She went to, to, to a nursery, to a gun, and my sister was picking up every day. And when she came to pick up Wanda, they said they went for a trip and they will be back the next day. They never came back. <laughs> and the baby, they just told my mother, put your finger here because she didn't know to sign. And she did with a finger and she didn't know that she's signing to give the baby away. They took advantage of their honesty they, and their timidity and their honesty and they're not knowing what's flying in Israel. And that's what happened. Yeah, it's a tragedy, which I did not like to talk. My parents did not want to talk Ketrug and Am Israel, but now it's all known. So right. I but I want to get to that, to the point that Saba Menachem and Safta Rina were people of, of great faith, deep faith. Um, they had a tremendous amuna, probably the most amuna of everyone I know. And just for perspective, I was telling Sarah that they lost five children over the span of their lifetime. Saba Menachem was the happiest man I have ever met. He was deeply, deeply invested and deeply joyous in his Yiddishkeit. And so I think that in today's day and age where we where we're looking at people who are, you know, experiencing tremendous tragedy um, and there's tremendous adversity and tremendous pain around us. And sometimes people can think like, how, how do I go on being in my Yiddishkeit? How do I go on being feeling uplifted? How do I go on being positive? And we look at people who went through, they lost their home, they lost their identity. They're living in a society where 
they they're not they they don't even really speak the language. Sabah They did not speak Hebrew. They spoke fluent Lashon Hakodesh, but not Hebrew. And they were positive, and they made you with what was. Yes, yes. Uh, when I can tell you really that it was so hard for us as children to believe the thing like this can be done. Like my father said, he ran away because they wanted to t- to cut his beard and his and his uh, payout and and taking them to 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 assimilate them so they took them to Arcelia they mixed them and this was the beginning they didn't know what's flying around I they put me in a secular school all of us that if if my father would not take me they would put my father in it in jail that was many that was the beginning of the Medina Israel definitely it was conflict yes I had a lot of conflict because I was in a five secular school and I come home to a home Yemenite it's not even Israel because at home I spoke Lashonakos I didn't speak Hebrew it took me two years in order to adjust uh, to change my Lashonakos to Hebrew regular Hebrew and my father I had to promise him And I'm going to say to him, every day, he will sit in the, in, the, in the backyard, listen to me, and I was afraid to come home and not to say it. Uh, what else can I tell you? Yes, but we were a very close family. They saw what's going around, how all the Sephardim are being assimilated, how they tell the kids their parents are primitive because all the mothers don't know to read, and all the, all the people came from Uh, very they were not so modern society and uh, it was not it was not easy for a lot I did not feel it so much because at home we were very proud we never felt poor because the other two in the house was very positive and also we were uh, we had a family we helped each other I don't know not all family had this privilege and It wasn't easy for a lot of Jews in Israel who come and I'm sure it was not easy for some Jews who came after the Holocaust and you know it too the Holocaust uh, kids who came from Europe they were, they did not they were not allowed to eat kosher food so in Israel in the beginning it wasn't easy for Jew, uh, Orthodox Jews who came from abroad especially for the Middle East. I want to talk oh. a little bit about the Imuna and the Bitaha yeah. that Saba and Saba yeah. said. Yeah. That even with everything and even after everything, they were still so committed to their faith and they were joyous in their faith and yeah. they were happy and they were, you know, invested and they weren't, we talk a lot today about trauma. They weren't these people. You know deeply traumatic people in the way that they can't continue to connect Hashem and I wonder why what is it about them we could talk about so many things they lost you know they lost children and they lost their home and they lost their identity and they lost almost they almost lost their faith even in even in the Yidden around them so what kept them committed to their faith I think the way you you Go up with a, a positive with honesty with uh, the, all your life you live Torah you live you live it it's not just a word it's like I, I remember until today I am what my parents are products of my parents I know there are some things that 
There is nothing, nobody can give it to me. It's just come in the DNA. My parents were honest people. They did not, uh, there is no question. There is no, it's hakmut, how you say that. You don't do shtick with Hashem. You don't do shtick with the Torah. You just don't. And don't try to be spiritual. It is what it is. That's what Hashem said. That's it. Don't start your shtick with chokhmah. There, is not, there was no such a thing of being angry at Hashem. And the work is a little bit true. When my mother, two kids, passed away, not so, they were not babies, they were seven, they were one of them five, and then she, they took away her daughter and they took a baby. And, and the shock of coming to such a secular world that she did not understand what's flying around, it was hard. But I think the Amuna and the other two and the positive, I think that's what kept them from not being bitter. And and we all have that. Wow. I am I am having a hard time processing this. This sounds like a huge shock, a tremendous shock. It's everything you ever believed in is gone. And imagine like going from Al Kanfe Nisharim to the very opposite, the extreme opposite, but it's not even being done by non-Jews, it's being done by fellow Jews. I, we used to so tell me. my mother, my parents, how could you? How could you not know? He said, he's a Jew. Why are you think a Jew will do that? How? And when we say, why don't you go and scream and yell and be, no sinah, they said, at Hashem. And we, did, as children, we did not understand. We said, What's wrong with you? How can, how can you? They said, I think we have to listen to, Sarah. This is what my mother keeps saying again and again that my Saba and my Safta, they kept saying, We don't talk bad about Yidin. We don't, even, even, even the Yidin who took away their kids, yes? They, we don't talk bad about Yidin. We're not Mekatrik on other Yidin. And and it's the simple, simple, simple emuna. And simple is not a bad word. I think sometimes people think, oh, simple. To me, not. To me, not. This edela, simple emuna that I trust in Hashem, a hundred percent. I don't understand it. I can't. Maybe I I I can't put my head around it. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. But I'm happy because I know Hashem has a plan, and I trust that. But it wasn't fake. It wasn't me singing a song about it. No, Not no, me for no. bringing about it. It's people who lived this. They really believed it in the essence of who they were. They didn't grapple with their emuna. Right. Emuna was there. But I'm yes, wondering. Yes. I'm wondering if initially when they came to Israel, this shock. There was no language, right? Because they spoke a completely no, different language. No, no, yes, they speak, right. Do they speak Arabic or Lashon HaKadosh? Okay, they, they spoke, uh, uh, the Hebrew was like a combination of Aramaic, Hebrew, and uh, a little bit Arabic. And Yemenite Arabic is not the same as like Palestinian or Egyptian. It's different. It's a little bit different. But they they spoke Lashon HaKadosh, so the Arab did not understand always. And they can't twist it a little bit. You know, they twist it. I can tell my daughter words in kind in Hebrew, but she won't understand it because they twist it, the accent changes, and they mix it up with another Aramaic word. So if you don't know Aramaic, if you don't know a little bit of Arabic, you don't know Shana Kodesh, you don't understand. It will sound to you like 
a different language. Yeah. I, I guess what I'm wondering is, so they didn't have a language, and everything is such a shock to their system. Yes, yes. yes. But do you think years later, when they finally you know, were acclimated and integrated, then they could feel anger, or then they could feel like the the shock or the the mistrust in how they were treated and they how their children they, were they taken never, away? No, they never assimilated. They did not want to. They did not. My 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 mother had a group of ladies, Yemenite, and they used to come to my mother every Shabbat and talk. She was not going out too much to other the world. No, they did not. Yes, they, they, it's not that they were angry. Like if they see we had a neighbor for Romania, he was not Shomer Shabbat. And uh, my, my parents did not even get close. They did not want us to go so much to them because they didn't know the Kashrut. They did not want us to be, and they did. But they never talked bad about them. Uh, no, they did not. I never heard my parents, and my parents tried to look for them. They did, but they did not know where to go. They always told them, go there, they're not here. And even we, we have a paper now, but that she's alive. At that time, they said, yeah, we have a paper, she's alive. Well, we don't know where. They just said that they she moved from Israel a uh, certain time. And they, they, this was my, my sister got from the from the interior office, but they cannot give you the address they're not allowed to. So I know she's someplace here. I don't know. And I know I have a baby brother that now he's not a baby, but him, I think it's almost lost case because they took him before he came to, before he made a boot at home. They sent him before him. And, and I excuse that he's not feeling well. It was a lie, but you know what? My mother cried every morning at five o'clock in the morning. She thought we sleep. And we heard her talking to Hashem and crying. We didn't understand that so much because we were children. We didn't really appreciate, we really cried. We didn't understand why Ima always cried, but she did not want to talk about it too much because it was painful and nobody understood her. And uh, yes, when I grew up, I, I was angry, not my mother. I was upset. I got, how could that be? How could you do that? I thought only Nazi would do. I remember I said, and somebody wanted to interview me about that at the time. And my mother said, no, we have enough enemy. You want to tell how bad we are? Don't. So I could not say. I, I said right away, yes. And then I told my mother, and she said, don't do it. I didn't sleep for nights. And I said, I'm not going to do it. Because my mother said they, they took it, took, took them. And we tried to find, and they knew it's they could not find. And they just dealt with Hashem. But with Hashem, they not upset. They were not angry. We were angry. We, the children, later on. I think if, I, if we knew that, we would not be so tolerant and have about Israel around us to other people. In my family, we really never talk, never had Lashonara at my home. We never talk about if somebody needs help. My mother will do it with blink eyes. If we knew all this story to detail, I don't think we will be to me, be Israel. 
I know that today. I know I have today more angry, but it's not angry of hate. It's like, you know, painful angry, you know? You know what I mean? Why it had to be like that? That, yes, yes, yes. And they struggle. They, were not, they did not have. But all Israel struggled at the time. And they never complained. I'm telling you, I never felt I'm poor. Never. But I'm saying when people talk to me, I said, it's the attitude. It's the emuna. It's the positive. And learning Torah at home. That mimut, you know. That's really what makes the house. And I once said to somebody, to be rich, you can have a million and you have other two of a poor guy. And you can have people with that other two of a rich. And that's the way I felt at home, and the emuna. And this emuna gave me a lot of power for my own struggling. And I can tell you that. So it's a very, very interesting story. And I'm, I'm watching Sarah and I keep texting Sarah, Sarah, you're off script. <laughs> because mm-hmm. to me, these are the stories that I grew up with and the stories mm-hmm. that, you know, my mother tells my kids and I like come to her and I'm like, you intergenerational trauma. You can't tell, you can't tell the kids about all your, you know, your brothers and sisters who were taken away and who died. It's not good stuff. So I'm listening to you, Sarah, being all fascinated by it, but I think that the message that I keep hearing from my mother and the message that I saw growing up from my Saba and my Safta was the the real simple faith and just trust in the process and the bigger picture. And I think sometimes in our tremendous knowledge and maybe our egotistical space of, you know, we know better, we understand better, we can justify and we can negotiate with Hashem and we can expect better outcomes from the world around us. Sometimes we forget that it's just really that simple, that Hashem has a plan and it might look messy and it might look ugly and it might look uncomfortable and it might look unpleasant, but Hashem has a plan and we know the ending and the ending is going to be wonderful and it's going to be great. And we need to trust the process a little bit, even if the way to the process is not so great. Absolutely. Okay. So Ima, what do you think the message that you would give people who are looking at the world around us today, at the anti-Semitism, at the hatred, at the suffering that people are going through, what message do you think that your life's journey and the life's journey of your parents and your siblings and Yemenite jewelry could share to today? I should be, we should be honest with our Torah, with our behavior. We should really, really be the emet in Hashem. And we have according to the Torah and be strong and not let go of And 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 I give a space to other Jews. Give a space to other. It's okay if he's a little bit, but he's Yerush That's okay. And be good and have a bad Israel between us. That's the main thing that really keep us. Beautiful. Um, so, Ima, thank you so much for sharing. No problem. Um, the Yemenite jewelry really did what they needed to do for thousands of years to keep their faith, and really, to the, it was it was more than just their faith. It was their connection to the Beis Hamikdash, and their you know preparing for Bias Mashiach by just marrying Levim to Levim and Kaihanim to Kaihanim, and the fact yeah. that they you know refused to come back if the Beis Hamikdash wasn't fully built by Binyan. By his Shani, um, for the second base of Magdash, and they 
continue to just continue holding on to the Messiah that they had as Levium and as Kehanim. And I'll um, just end up with a very interesting fact that I think is very cool, that they were so focused on their family Messiah and their their family tree mm-hmm. that my family can actually trace themselves all the way back to Kairach. That's very, very, my very father, My father's side. My, my Saba Menachem's family, they they know that they come, you know, they know which Levian family they're from and they can actually trace all the way back. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting thing to understand that this is people who had travesty. They struggled financially, struggled with the people around them. They struggled, but they had complete simple amuna. They had complete bitachon that Mashiach was coming and that they were going to come back to a land where they were able to serve Hashem in a way that they preserved for thousands and thousands of years. And I want to end with this idea because I think that that's what we need to hold on to today. As we're getting closer to Mashiach, we need to hold on to our Messiah and we have to hold on to our traditions and we have to prepare our children and prepare ourselves because Mashiach is coming. Um, And we have to really hold on to the fact that this is the next step. And so when we're talking about faith under fire, I want to end the series with the idea that our, our, our people have been under fire before, and it is absolutely for certain the fact that we are about to enter an era of eternal peace um, and an era where we're going to have Hashem down here in this world, and there's going to be all the good things for all of Am Yisrael. Oh, man, that's Amen. Thank, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. It was amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed and grew. Original music of Shamil's Nigan provided by Chazan David Katak. We look forward to your input, feedback, and suggestions. We also have partnership opportunities available. Please email info at bodiessouls.com. Again, info at bodiessouls.com with two S's. Thank you. Thank you.